I'd like to uh, read this morning is part of our opening prayer a couple of verses from the 95th Psalm verses we know very well O come let us sing for joy to the Lord let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation let us come before his presence with thanksgiving let us shout joyfully to him with psalms for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods we thank you Lord that you are the true and the living God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to whom we bow this morning, acknowledging that you are our King, you are the God above all gods. In fact, as Scripture tells us, all other gods are simply demons. And we know, Lord, that you are the true and the living God who has redeemed us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you as we begin this new year, this new century, this new millennium, that we do so in the house of the Lord, where we can offer praises to your name and where we can receive from you the work that you would do in our hearts. We know, Lord, that today you will speak to us through your word as we study, as we're open to hear what you would say. God bless each here this day. Father, we just pray that you'll bless as the word is now being proclaimed uh, this hour in the second service and throughout the city of Reading and around the world. We ask that you will glorify your great name in the house of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> to re review briefly the story that we're looking at from Second Samuel, you remember that we began looking at the life of a man who was otherwise unknown, known as Saul, the son of Kish, a, of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, and, and the last we heard, of course, that he had been in pursuit of some lost donkeys. And uh, in this search, which turned out to be rather fruitless after three days, his servant noted that the city of Ramah was nearby. And so he said, why don't we go up and check with the seer Samuel and see if he can tell us about the donkeys? Well, Saul, apparently not too familiar with Samuel, said, sure, why not? Let's do it. Upon meeting Samuel, and we won't go through the details of the encounter there, Samuel did ultimately tell him that the donkeys had been found. But of course, as we noted, this meeting had been arranged by God, not so that Saul would discover where donkeys were, but that Saul would hear, hear from Samuel that he had been chosen to be Israel's first king. You remember that as Saul left the early morning of the next day, after he had been housed actually all night in Samuel's house, that as Saul was about to leave at the city gate, Samuel privately anointed Saul. No one else apparently around. His servant was sent on ahead, and he uh, anointed him there as king over Israel because Saul certainly wondered what this was all about and rather doubted that Samuel was in his right mind at that particular moment. Samuel said to Saul, there will be three events which will occur this day which I prophesy at this moment, which will validate what I have said to you and what I have done for you. And you remember in the first part of the 10th chapter of First Samuel, we read that he was told that he would go to a region near Rachel's tomb, the city of Bethlehem. And, and there he would run into two people and those two people would, would tell him that the donkeys had been found and, and now your father's worried about you. You better go home. Now, think about this for a minute. Bethlehem and Gibeah are not exactly next to each other. First of all, why did 
Saul go down to Bethlehem when he was going from Ramah to Gibeah, which are only two, three miles apart? Well, obviously because Saul had sent him on this particular little circuitous route. But why were there men down near Bethlehem who knew that the donkeys had been found up at Gibeah? Remember, there's no television, there's no telephone, there's no email, <laughs> there, there's no quick means of communication. Uh, people were very parochial. They lived close to home. They didn't generally travel far from home in those days. And uh, so it's, it's kind of a small miracle in and of itself that these two men down here would even know anything about Saul's donkeys, especially as we get to the latter part of this chapter and discover that a man who lived in Gibeah, who was Saul's own uncle, didn't know about it. So it's, it's kind of a miracle in and of itself. Secondly, uh, near Bethel, now that's further to the north and, and quite a ways away from Bethlehem. Well, not quite a ways in our terms, you know. In those days when you walked everywhere, that was a bit of a distance. But there he would meet three men and they would be carrying various things. One would be carrying a, a kid or kids for a sacrifice, a, a baby goats. Another would be carrying a jug of wine. Another would be carrying three loaves of bread of which he would give two to Saul. Give two loaves of bread. What kind of a sign is that? Well, you know, he didn't know these individuals. Therefore, it was a sign. And then finally, the great sign, though, would occur at Geba. Now, Geba's back to the west of where he was. He's gone south. He's gone to the north, uh, to the east. And now he's going back over to the west before he ever gets home. And over here at Geba, he was to be met by some prophets, a group of prophets who were playing musical instruments and prophesying. At that moment, he was told, the Spirit of God would come upon him and he too would prophesy. Well, at that moment, I think Saul's, Saul's skepticism rose to an incredible height. I will be prophesying. Do you know me, Samuel? I will be prophesying. Although he was in his 30s and had been raised at Geba, which is just a few miles to the east of Ramah, which was Samuel's home, Saul had shown so little interest in the things of God that he had never even seen Samuel, who had been Shofat, who had been priest, who had been the greatest prophet thus far in the history of Israel. He had never even seen him. He didn't even recognize him when he saw him. I mean, you know, most people would probably want to see the great prophet, the great Shofat, especially since Samuel did a circuit thing, you know, going over to uh, Gilgal and Mizpah and and so forth, making this circuit uh, every year, every six months. We're not told the timing of his circuit. Uh, traveling very close to Giba frequently. And you would think he would want to get out and at least hear him one time, you know. I mean, if Billy Graham were going to be down in, in Anderson, would most of us just sit here and, and you know, ignore the whole thing and never go? I, I doubt that. And, and, of course, this man, Samuel, made more impact in Israel than Billy Graham does in the United States because he was the prophet. He was the Shofat. He was the man whose word had been validated by the Lord over and over again. So what kind of a man was Saul? Definitely not a man after God's own heart, not a man pursuing God. And that's why I think we have mentioned at least twice in this passage that God was going to do something in the heart of Saul. In fact, it wasn't, he, God didn't even wait till he met up with the prophets over at Geba at the end of the day. God met him at the very moment. It says when he turned his back on Samuel to go down the road that God's spirit fell on him, changed his heart right at that moment. Well, let's read on if we might, beginning at the ninth verse of the 10th chapter of 1 Samuel. 
Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? And a man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to a high place, which means Gibeah. The word Gibeah means high place. It means he came home. Let me read a couple more verses here. Then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. When we saw that they could not be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom, which Samuel had mentioned. <laughs> Understatement. Mentioned. Now, this was the passage we were looking at, lo, those three weeks ago. God has changed the heart of Saul. You might say, from what you already know, from having read on it other times and heard sermons on Saul, you might say, what kind of a change was this? Well, you have to understand, God changed his heart from where he had been before to, to what he would become. This, of course, didn't preclude the fact that he could resist the working of the Spirit of God, which he did, to end up a rather reprobate man in the end. God gave him the three signs that very day. At Bethlehem, he ran into the two that told him the donkeys had been found. At Bethel, he ran into the three, one of whom gave him two loaves of bread. And the, the, the chapter, this passage does not focus on those first two. It just sums them up at the end of the ninth verse there and, and then talks a little bit about the third sign, which was rather more significant in terms of its overall impact. When Saul and his servant came to Geba, they did encounter these sons of the prophets. Now, it is believed, the commentators who look at this believe that this concept of the sons of the prophet was sons of the prophets was fairly new that maybe Samuel himself had begun the school of the prophet. And uh, these were individuals who were like students of Samuel. And they were practicing to be prophets, I suppose you could say. Anyway, Saul encountered these individuals, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul. And the scripture says that the, God, the Spirit of God gave him the gift of ecstatic utterance at that particular moment. Apparently, it seems from the passage now, as you read into the verses 11, 12, and 13, that the prophets traveled with him, or he traveled with the prophets back to Gibeah. Now, Geba is directly west of Gibeah, so that would be a natural route to follow because of the route into the highlands there from the coast. And, and so this is a very probable direction that they moved. In verse 11, we discover that the people who encountered Saul, seeing him prophesy and traveling with the group of the prophets, knew him. They knew Saul. And that's what makes this passage, if without looking at that background, when you read verses 11 and 12, they can seem almost a little bit enigmatic as you read them. It says, and it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied with the prophets that the people said to one another, what has happened to Saul, 
uh, to the son of Kish, is Saul among the prophets? And a man there answered and said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? As you read those two verses, you don't necessarily follow the logic here of how it went from verse 11 to verse 12. But what we have to understand is Saul has been seen and heard with the prophets prophesying by probably members of his family, certainly members of his clan, residents of the city of Gibeah. These are small towns. These were small towns where news traveled very quickly from one end of the town to the other. What else did you have to do but talk? There wasn't any other way to communicate. There wasn't anything else to do. There were no movies to go to, no television to watch, no football. I mean, what else was there but to talk? And so news was quickly sent from one person to another within the small community. And, and of course, it was not free from being um, inflated or conflated, if you will, to some extent. Uh, it, it seems quite clear that the friends and family members who had known Saul were incredulous. <laughs> is this Saul? <laughs> is this the Saul we know? What has happened to him? And the two questions that are asked in that uh, passage bring this out clearly. First, what has happened to the son of Kish? What's happened to this guy? Has you know, is he on something? Of course, they didn't have anything to be on in those days. <laughs> Maybe they did. <laughs> Maybe they did, yeah. <laughs> well, Hashish is very old, but I haven't heard of any being used there in uh, Israel. A as you may know, uh, the word assassin is derivative from the word Hashish because there were a group of individuals who, because of being on Hashish, were converted into assassins because once they're on Hashish, they go out and do anything they were told to. And so we get that connection. Not that has anything to do with this verse, but <laughs> Mary. It Where are you getting at? <laughs> <laughs> Is that the amplified version? Well, see, the, the thing of it is, Saul is not from an upper-class family. He is from a very, very modest family. In fact, he is an unknown person in Israel. The son of Kish is virtually nobody in Israel. Sure, in Gibeah, he's somebody of some significance, but it, he's not a man of high standing. That's one of the reasons why there was such question about Saul being the king and why Saul himself was reticent to accept the position because he knew he was not of one of the great families. Wasn't from a great tribe. <laughs> That's exactly right. He was from the tribe that was almost annihilated, remember, back in, uh, in the book of Judges. So, and what version is that? Uh, oh, these are the notes. Oh, okay. Maybe prophets were held in very low esteem, so they're kind of thought to be on the outside. Um, well, many times prophets were considered to be a bit odd. <laughs> However, you remember what Jesus said, prophets are not without honor, save in their own city. So there was a sense in which they were held in honor, too, especially men like Samuel. Samuel was held in great fear by most of the people of Israel. What I am saying and, and what I feel the passage is saying is not so much that Saul had crossed social lines as that Saul was doing something that was out of character with Saul, 
because he had not demonstrated any particular spiritual interest prior to this point. And they associate the prophets in a close relationship with Yahweh. And that Saul had apparently up to this time had very little time for Yahweh, at least in any obvious way. And I think that was what was causing the amazement. I think the people did recognize the difference between someone who, well, just your John Doe trucker, let's say, in uh, California who's never been to church in his life uh, compared to someone who is, uh, you know, assistant pastor of some church. I mean, kind of that kind of a difference. I think what they were saying is that we know this man. We know his family. We know his clan. And what he's doing is out of character for Saul. And they, they, they asked the question, is Saul among the prophets? And I think we have to understand that that's not just a matter-of-fact question. That's an incredulous question. You know. Is Saul among the prophets? Maybe they're saying is, what do the prophets come to? You know, that they've got Saul in their midst now. Uh, the men of Gibeah who knew Saul, the answer to that question was no. Saul's not amongst the prophets. Not really. Not at least in the past he had not been. Saul had apparently never shown any particular spiritual inclination before that particular time. And so they were quite mystified. One of the men of Gibeah asked the question, now, who is their father? Referring to the prophets, who is their leader? The question may have been asked in order to find out from the leader if this is really true. Has Saul really been coming with you? And is he really prophesying or is he just making up this whole thing? Has he had too much wine? You know, what, what is the situation here? Some commentators, however, feel that what the question is saying is that prophets are brought into existence by call, not by birth. And since you become a prophet by the call of God and not by birth, then yes, it's possible for Saul to be amongst the prophets. He didn't have to be born into a prophetic family because God calls people to be prophets and maybe God has called Saul. But what is interesting is, you'll notice at the end of verse 12, it says, therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? And of course, we don't necessarily get that, how that follows one from the other just from reading those, <coughs> those two verses. In his commentary on the verse, that verse in this particular passage, uh, Eugene Merrill says this, so amazed were the witnesses to Saul's dramatic and powerful change of character that they created a proverb which thereafter was quoted to describe a totally unexpected, unexplainable phenomenon. In other words, they'd see a sun eclipse and they'd say, is Saul also amongst the prophets? You know, kind of, wow, this is something we can't explain. Kind of a concept here. Upon his arrival at the high place at, at Gibeah, where his family lived, we're told in this passage that Saul met his uncle. Now, the Hebrew word here specifies that it is his father's brother, meaning uncle, yes, but his father's brother, uncle. It seems from the question that his uncle asks him, he says, where did you go? must indicate that he had been a little bit out of contact with Kish lately and didn't know that Saul had been sent in search of the family donkeys that had been lost. And so Saul, of course, responds to the question. And it's interesting that in describing the fruitless search, Saul does mention that he saw Samuel and talked with Samuel. <laughs> well, the lights now went on in the uncle's head. Oh, you talked to Samuel. <laughs> Maybe that has something to do with why you were with the prophets. And so 
he wants to know, what did Samuel say to you? Why would he want to know what Samuel said to him? Not because he had any inkling whatsoever of what Saul, Samuel actually saw, saw, Saul for. But he wanted to know, what could Samuel have said to you that has caused this undistinguished nephew to start prophesying amongst the group of the prophets? Saul's response to his uncle is rather revealing. It tells us something of the character of Saul and what he felt about what had happened to him at Ramah. He was afraid to tell his uncle any more than, well, Samuel told us that the donkeys had been found. Well, was that the important thing that he was told? Hardly. <laughs> I mean, Samuel had taken him up to the hill there a sacrifice had been made. He and his servant were the guests of honor and, and amongst a, a group of 30 men or so that were the leaders there at Ramah. And he had stayed overnight in Samuel's house. Now, how many of us, if we were invited to Billy Graham's house and stayed overnight in his house, would never tell anybody? <laughs> the name droppers that we are. No, he didn't say that. He simply told him, well, he told me the donkeys had been found. He was afraid of his uncle's derision. You? He anointed you as king of Israel? Tell me another joke. <laughs> I, I need one, you know. You're, you've become a comedian is what you... Saul didn't want to be laughed off the hill because these people knew him. He was not a man of, of great royal prestige and bearing. He was just one of the guys. If Saul was truly to become Israel's king, the public proclamation was not going to come from Saul. It had to come from Samuel himself. And so it would be. Let's read on in the 10th chapter, beginning at verse 17. Therefore Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you today rejected your God, who delivered you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord, further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So Saul said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom, and he wrote them in a book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. And Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he kept silent. 
This passage of Scripture is unique in all of Scripture because it describes the beginning of the Israelite monarchy. There had been in Israel to this moment never before a monarch. From the day Israel left Egypt hundreds of years before, 300 years at least, until the day that we're reading about, Israel had been theocratically ruled, that is, governed directly by God through specifically anointed leaders. The first of those leaders was Moses. And then, of course, came Joshua. And then came the 12 Shofatim that are mentioned in the book of Judges, plus Eli and Samuel, afterwards at least 14. Shofatim, Judges, if you will. From Othniel through Samuel, Israel had been ruled by men who, first of all, held a position unlike that of any other nation in the world, at least that we know about, at that particular time and probably ever since. A position that combined political and spiritual leadership, not that that's totally new or foreign, there were other countries that did that, but which derived its authority directly from God. The, the, the leader derived his authority directly from God, not from the land, not from the people, and not from the aristocracy. You go through the nations of the world and read through history and you'll discover almost every ruler in history, his power was based on the land or it was based on the people or it was based upon the aristocracy generally, the aristocracy. Secondly, Israel's leaders were and never had been up to this point elected. They had been chosen directly by God. They had not inherited their position they had been chosen by God and empowered by God alone. And in order to validate the choice, God acted on their behalf. God even at times performed miracles. And you remember the many miracles God performed on behalf of Moses. And the miracles he performed on, the, on behalf of Joshua. How many people in history could stand there and pray and God would hold the sun still for 24 hours? Because of this validation, these individuals had generally been accepted. Oh, there were always were the detractors, even in the days of the great Moses, detractors of Othniel and Jephthah and Gideon and all the rest. But generally speaking, the people accepted their leadership because God had authenticated their leadership. In this passage, we're reading about the formal end of the theocracy and the beginning of the monarchy in the history of Israel. Samuel who we discover is Israel's last shofat, last judge, reluctantly officiated over the change. He did not want to officiate over this change because he didn't believe this change should be occurring. And we'll see, we've already noted that, we'll note it several times yet uh, as we read through uh, these next few chapters. <clears throat> and so he used the occasion to remind the leaders of Israel that in choosing a human king, they were in fact rejecting God as their sovereign. They were trying to push God into the position where all, where all the other gods lived at that time. If you went to neighboring countries, in some cases, the king was viewed as a kind of a viceroy of the gods, as he was often in uh, ancient Sumer. And of course, in some countries like Egypt, the king was actually the god himself. You know, he was Horus in the flesh. But generally speaking, the uh, gods were kind of put off in their realm and the politics were in another realm and the two didn't too often meet together as they did in the case of the Shofat. 
Samuel gathered together the men of Israel at the little town of Mizpah. We remember Mizpah because Mizpah was the place where early in Samuel's position as Shofat, they'd had a miraculous victory over a great Philistine army. Samuel, of course, had already privately anointed Saul, but it was time now for a public confirmation of God's choice. Whether it was that Israel was not ready to accept Samuel's word only, we don't know. But Samuel called for another expression of God's choice. Not just that I've heard from God and I've anointed your man. In case you don't believe me, let's do it another way to validate the fact that this is God's choice. He, of course, used this opportunity to remind the men of Israel that their demand for a king was an act of rebellion against God. He was going to allow it. God was going to allow this rebellion. God was going to allow the king. But they would live to regret it. And he emphasized that. You will live to regret it. And what we're going to find fascinating as we get a couple of chapters further on here, we're going to discover that Samuel is going to demonstrate by how he functioned as Shofat how far kings would fall from the ideal as they attempted to lead the country and turned into oppressors. Samuel's command, which is recorded for us here at the end of verse 19, helps us to understand, yes, Israel has rebelled. They have demanded a king, but God is still with Israel. So Samuel, as God's representative, tells the man, group up according to tribe. Get yourself together in tribes and clans and families. We're going to cast lots here. We're going to pick a king. I think he began with the tribe of Reuben. Probably he went down chronologically through the tribes to cast lots to determine which tribe was to be picked. And as they cast lots, they came to the tribe of Benjamin. I'm sure they were getting a little frustrated as they started with Reuben and started working down the line here. No, 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 no. Well, wait a minute, you know. It's like Samuel later on when he has to pick from uh, the sons of Jesse. He has to pick uh, the one and go, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> Sometimes God delays, or at least from our perspective, delays. Sometimes God says, no, it's not that obvious. What you see, you look in the outward appearances, God you know, will actually say to Samuel, but I look in the heart. Concerning the use of the lot to choose a king, uh, the commentator Ronald Youngblood makes this statement. He says, the procedure of casting sacred lots here to pinpoint Saul as Israel's king was used earlier to isolate Achan as the thief of Israel's plunder. <clears throat> the lots, known as Urim and Thummim, were stored in the breastplate attached to the ephod of the high priest and were brought out and cast whenever a simple yes or no would suffice. Although casting lots was perhaps not unlike throwing dice, the results were not left to chance since God himself guided the decisions. And here young bud quotes from the passage I'm sure you're familiar with in Proverbs 16 where we read these words, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, that is not a blanket statement saying every time you throw the dice, God's guiding the fall of the dice. No. What it is saying is that when the lot is cast in Israel 
To determine the will of God, God guides the decision. So all the Urim and Thummim did was say yes or no. Yes or no to the question, whatever the question was, yes or no. And so Reuben, no. Levi, no. Simeon, no. Judah, no. Doom, 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 doom. Down each of the tribes. And finally the Benjamin, yes. And they probably said, Benjamin? Well, we nearly wiped out that crew just a few years back. There are a lot of them around. Benjamin? Once the tribe of Benjamin was selected, lots were then cast to determine the clan. And the Matrite clan was chosen. And if that's an unfamiliar name to you, it ought to be because this is the only place in Scripture it shows up. That's how famous the clan was. Never mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. And then once the clan has been uh, chosen, they cast lots, the family of Kish. And then they cast lots, Saul. How would you do that? Well, Kish. No, his oldest son, well, I, you know, we don't know how many sons Kish had or what the order was, but cast lots, yes, no, yes, no, this guy, no, this guy, no, this guy, no, salt, yes. Wait a minute, roll him again. <laughs> <laughs> the lot fell upon Saul, even though he was not present when he was chosen. And the question was asked, did he come yet? <laughs> did he come yet? How could they miss him? He was taller than anybody else. How could they have missed him? That's how important he was. Well, I don't know. If tall guys even gotten here yet, you know. That's how much they were paying attention. Because of his earlier amazing meeting with Samuel, Saul had a strong feeling he was going to be chosen. He comes from a humble background, relatively speaking. He was apparently truly fearful to be exalted in front of the whole nation, particularly amongst his own family and clan. How would it be for you if you were at a family gathering and the president-elect walked up and said, you, I want you to be secretary of state. The rest of your family would all drop dead on the spot, you know. <laughs> Only this was even greater. This is king. Israel's never had a king before. First king of Israel. The man who sets all precedents. Those of you who are students of American history know how important first precedents are. And that's why you know how important George Washington is in the history of the United States. If we'd had a, and I'm not going to name anybody in particular, as the first president of the United States, we would probably be destroyed by now. Who knows where we would be? I'm not saying that George Washington was a tower, a paragon of virtue, and, and a godly man above all godly men. But he was a man of wisdom. He was a man of strength. He was a man of humility. He was a man who honored God in his way, uh, who, who knew that he was setting precedents and was careful about what he did and what he said. Very wise in who he picked to be the earliest cabinet members. There weren't very many, only about four uh, to begin with. No Department of Energy <laughs> in those days, you know. Energy was pretty simple. Drop a little wood or a little cow dung in there and, you know, you got your energy. <coughs> Saul was going to be setting those precedents. People were concerned. People were fearful. And Saul himself was fearful. I think he was fearful of the possible responsibilities of being king. He didn't even know what they would be for sure. Certainly would be leading the army. And he was not a soldier. As far as we know, there's nothing to indicate he was ever a soldier. Certainly he understood, of course, that he would be discovered and that he would be brought out of hiding and that he was only delaying the inevitable. 
However, you know, it's possible he may have felt that being seen drugged reluctantly before the people to be hailed of king, as king would be easier for him than to witness the incredulous expressions on his family's faces when he stood there and they announced or the lots fell on Saul. To, be, to appear reluctant to, to take such a higher honor seems an easier route than to say, yeah, <laughs> I should be king, you know, like these people on the basketball court in the football field today, you know. <laughs> Whatever the case, Saul was found and he was brought before the Israelite assembly. To most of Israel, he had been totally anonymous. Saul who? You remember the question back in the election of 1976. Jimmy who? You know, when Jimmy Carter was nominated by the Democrats, almost nobody in the country knew about Jimmy Carter, except people from Georgia. Saul who? Son of Kish? Who's the son of Kish? Matri clan. <laughs> oh, well, that helps. Therefore, when he stood there in the midst of the men that day as king-elect, they were pleasantly surprised to note he was taller than anybody else. You know, height does make a difference in certain circumstances, not just basketball. Capitalizing on that impression, Samuel emphasized that point. He pointed out that Saul is unequaled in stature. Not only is he tall, look at the regal bearing of the man. But, most importantly, he underscored the fact that this was God's choice. Regardless of anything else, God has chosen the man. I know this to be true because I've received the word from the Lord before we ever cast these lots. I anointed him weeks ago because God so led me to do. With that, the people broke out in loud acclamation, long live the king. Ever wonder where that phrase comes from and why it's been used in, in England and in many other places? It comes from scripture. Long live the king. Quieting the crowd, Samuel then proclaimed the ordinances of the kingdom. Yea, we have a king, but now listen to what that means, Samuel was saying to the people. I want you to know what the rules and the guidelines are for being a kingdom because you've never been a kingdom before. You've always been a theocracy. But now there will be rules. Now there will be guidelines. Now there will be official laws other than the law of Scripture, other than the Torah. There will be now political laws, economic laws. Are you glad you've chosen a king? I'm going to describe you, to you what is to be the role of the king over Israel and what is to be the role of the people vis-a-vis -vis the king and the kingdom. And I think that this was probably a detailed expansion of what God had already given concerning the choosing of a king in Israel, clear back in the 17th chapter of Deuteronomy. I like to end today reading that passage, Deuteronomy chapter 17. I think this was the foundation of what Samuel wrote that day. Deuteronomy 17, reading at verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from your own countrymen you shall set over you as king. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. 
Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn, learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So the Lord gave guidance to Saul and to Israel. Well, next week we'll pick up at that point.